And turn in your Bible, flip your sheet over there, and turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew. Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. You know, for the last several weeks here at Grace, we've been going over uh, some of the parables of Jesus and, um, uh, and looking at uh, the meaning behind these parables. And Jesus uh, often opened his parables, just like he does this one, uh, with the admonition, he says, listen, listen, and uh, pay attention. And, uh, and then you notice some of his parables, everybody didn't understand, right? Jesus, it was like clear, and then the disciples like, after he tells the parable, they send everybody, and the disciples like, hey, Jesus, what did that mean? And then he's like, here's what it means. It wasn't given for some of them to understand, and we understand through Scripture that to really understand what Jesus was teaching, you have to have the right disposition of heart to perceive what he was saying in some of these parables. And so some of these parables for the people were a little tricky, but this ain't one of those. Amen? And I mean, it's just not. This parable was everybody understood exactly what Jesus was saying at that time. Uh, and he offers this uncomfortably accurate analysis of the human heart that's a little uncomfortable even to look at. And he describes what the Pharisees are going to do, and he pretty much just says, this is what you're going to do to him. So here's the context. This parable happened shortly after Jesus had cleaned the, the temple out, the money changers, right? And he had cracked that whip, and he run everybody out. And, um, and the reason is because Jesus is a man's man, right? He does not look like he walked out of a shampoo commercial. And so Jesus had cracked that whip and run everybody out. And now uh, he's telling this parable. Uh, and I imagine, and I think he was in the temple square when he told this parable, but I imagine everybody's a little on edge. Things are getting kind of tense, right? Jesus, meek and mild, is running wild on you, brother. You know what I mean? He is wrestling, sumo wrestler. Anyway, and so, he's, and so everybody's listening, and by now, the fair, it's really clear that Jesus is a threat to the establishment, okay? And so let's begin in Matthew 21, and I'm going to start in verse 33. He says, hear another parable. He says, hear. In other translations, you may have it, have it, it'll say, listen, listen. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Okay, he had his vineyard, had his wine presses, and he had business to do elsewhere, so he leased it to the vine dressers. Now, what you need to know, maybe you don't recognize this right away, is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Raise your hand if you've heard of the prophet Isaiah. The prophet, that was just to wake some of y'all up. Amen, I'm just getting started. And so the prophet Isaiah had famously told a, a story um, uh, uh, that where he compared the creation of Israel to a landowner who had planted a vineyard and he left it under the stewardship of some workers. And then when the, the landowner came back, uh, the fruit was sour, so the landowner destroyed the whole vineyard. And that's supposed to be Israel. That, that was God saying, this is you, this is Israel. They, everybody listening to Jesus in that day would have known that story really well, and they would have understood this is a condemnation of Israel in the time of the prophet Isaiah. And it was an explanation for the fact of going into exile. But Jesus tells the same story, and he adds a little twist to it. Look at verse 34. He says, now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers, 
that they might receive its fruit. In other words, it's time for me to get a return on my investment. Verse 35, and the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, i got to be honest. When you come to this part of the parable, it's a little bit mind-blowing. Like, if you know, if you come at it from a New Testament, you know, if you've been in church very long, you understand kind of what this picture is. But if you're hearing this for the first time, you have to be thinking, if they killed those first servants that they, that that he sent, and he killed that second group, and that second group, it's even more than the first time. Why in the wide world of sports would he send his son, right? I mean, it'd be a little bit like if I heard a noise outside, and I said, Marcus, my 50, Marcus, go outside and see what that is. He went outside and got whooped good, and come back in and said, Daddy, I got whooped good. There's many people out there. Whooped me good. <laughs> Sumo. And it whooped good, and uh, then I said, okay, Okay, Alicia. <laughs> They'll respect you because you're my wife, okay? They'll know it. No. Right? But why would the owner do this? Why would he send, why would you send the most precious person to you into this situation? Uh, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. We'll come back to it later. Ver look at verse 38. It says, But when the vine dressers saw the sun, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Sweethearts. Sweethearts. Go to verse 39. It says, So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus asked this question. Okay, they took him, they killed him. So let me ask you this question. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And so they answered Jesus and they said, He will destroy those wicked men miserably. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. I mean, he's talking to these Pharisees and all these people. He says, God will be taken, uh, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. Now, this is a, a direct quote from Psalm 118. And uh, in, in that psalm, it's actually one of the five psalms of what they call the five psalms of Halal. And the five psalms of Halal is something they would do each year around the Passover. And so the Passover, this uh, Passover week is going on all around Jesus when he's telling this story. So everybody that he's talking to, they know this psalm. It's like, you, do you know Christmas songs? Right? It'd be like me quoting a Christmas song. If I quoted a Rudolph Red Nose. Now, but if I quoted a Christmas song, you would know what I was talking about. When Jesus is quoting this psalm, everybody that's listening to him knows this psalm intimately. And so um, he takes the key themes of this psalm. And um, Isaiah, and he says, this is about me. He says, I am the one that everyone is singing about in these psalms. It's all about me. And I'm the stone to be rejected by you builders, you religious leaders, and I will become the primary cornerstone of a new building. What he's saying right here at the end, it's kind of like, let's use a sports team. It's like as if somebody got cut from a team, and then they go to another team, and they win a championship, and they're the all-star. Right? That's the whole way you can think of this stone, this cornerstone. 
and all of these things. It's the corner. What you have rejected, I'm going to go to someone else, right? And they're going to reap the benefits of this. Look at verse 45. It says, now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Now, okay, this has nothing to do with our Bible study tonight, but I kind of imagine, like, you talking about me? Is he talking about me? Did he say sumo wrestler? That old man? Oh, no, okay, I keep getting back to me, right? I love how it says that they perceived that he was speaking of them. It just proves they maybe weren't as stupid as we thought they were, amen? It was common knowledge, though, that the nation of Israel had a long legacy of murdering and hurting the prophets of God, the prophets that God would send to them. Every Jewish boy of that time grew up learning. The prophet Jeremiah was beaten several times. He was thrown into a pit. He was stoned. Uh, a little-known prophet Uriah was tracked down and run through with a sword. Uh, Micah was punched in the face by false prophets. Elijah and Amos were banished, and that, they had to hide in caves. Ezekiel was murdered after preaching a sermon. I'm sorry. Habakkuk and, and Zechariah both were stoned uh, by Jews living in Jerusalem. Uh, Zechariah was stoned to death. The prophet Zechariah was stoned to death in front of the temple. I mean, in front of the altar in the temple. That's where they stoned him to death. Uh, Isaiah was put in a log and sawed in half. Never really understood the log part. I'm just like, go for it, guys. You know, But they put him in a log and sawed him in half. These religious leaders knew that history. So when Jesus is talking about all these terrible things that happened to the prophets, they knew exactly what he was talking about. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I believe in my heart. I believe that those guys kind of thought those kind of things were in the past, right? Sure, those are the things our ancestors, they did back then, but they were so simple and ignorant, and they weren't as smart as us. They weren't as advanced as us. They weren't as moral as us. They weren't as good as us. I would have never hurt the prophet Isaiah, right? I would have never done anything to, to Jeremiah. They were too righteous, too advanced, too morally upright. The irony is they are about to do worse than anything their ancestors did when they get Jesus put on that cross. And, but at the moment, they have to be thinking, we would never do that. We're so advanced. Now, um, quick sidebar here. I want you to remember this story whenever we're tempted to look back at our ancestors and go, how could they do that? You know, in history, when you, uh, things in history, how could a Christian own slaves? How could a Christian uh, uh, murder Indians? I'm just, whatever it is. Think about our ancestors in times past. How could, a, how could they do, and when we say that, we act as if we don't have the same sinful nature in our life i mean i don't know how you could be mad about slavery but be okay with abortion we have the same sinful capability in our hearts that our ancestors did before us it just shows itself in different ways but yet we think that we're advanced and enlightened and we cast judgment on generations past for being ignorant and not having the the truth when the truth is, they had sinful hearts, and we do too. We do too. The Bible teaches us that we're made out of the same material as they are, the same fallen hearts, and given the same circumstances, the same pressures that our forefathers faced, we would more than likely respond the same way if we were in their shoes. 
Stories of human depravity, bad things that happened in the past shouldn't make us arrogant and like and strut and think that we're so far beyond that. We should react with humility and like repentance, right? Not me, Lord. Help me not to be like that. Uh, uh, well, that's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they, they didn't get. So I think, I think they thought somehow their religion had advanced to the point where these things that Jesus was saying no longer applied to them. That's one of the dangers of religion. Religion blinds your heart. There's this danger for people. Okay, listen, I hope your children grow up in church. I hope that baby back there, nine months before they're born, is, listen, a, a member of Grace Baptist Church. Does that make sense? I remember Marcus. He was a member of a Grace Baptist Church. He was born in a a church named Grace Baptist Church. He was going to that church nine months before he was born. And that's good. And I wouldn't trade anything for it. I'm not saying there's a better way, but listen to me. When people outside of church, when they see the depths of their sinfulness and their depravity, and when they witness in the world how bad people can be, and then when they respond to the gospel call, they get saved. They recognize who they were, and what Christ has done for them, when they repent, they show enough repent. But what happens many times in the life of church people, you grow up in church and you've always been in church and somehow you kind of mold your life in some kind of wall of morality that's acceptable by the church that we ignore the sinful potential in our hearts and we never do business with God about the sinful nature of our own hearts because somehow we've molded ourselves in what we think is okay and what's moral. We're hiding behind that and never surrender to the Savior. We have a form of religion, but we don't have Christ. You see it all the time. Look at this next slide. Many times religion is like the perfume that keeps you from recognizing the stench in your own heart. I've got these rules. I follow the rules, so I must be okay. Rules never made you okay. Rules never going to make you okay. It's only Christ. When we recognize that we're sinners, we turn from our sin and we trust Christ. That's forgiveness. But keeping up some kind of weird, churchy person rule, morality, that won't get you anywhere. So what I want to focus on for the next few minutes is kind of Jesus' analysis here of the human heart and the Pharisees and what was going on. Um, there's a couple things that I want you to see. These are gonna, it's going to sound kind of grim, but it's really awesome. And so I want you to see that, okay? It's really awesome. Number one, write this down. Sometimes, what we see in these parables is sometimes unbelief is on purpose. I can't help it. I don't believe. That is just simply not true. The tenants, the renters in this parable, didn't murder the son because they didn't know who he was. Did they know who the son was? He's the heir. Did they murder him anyway? They absolutely did. They, they murdered him because he challenged their ownership of the field. And so by this point in Jesus' life, the Pharisees recognized who he was. He's dangerous and needs to be killed. But in telling this story, what Jesus is saying, you Pharisees, you know who I am. And you're going to kill me anyway. Look at Romans 8, verse 7. Here's why. Scripture, Paul says, because the carnal mind... Is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Paul is saying that our sinful mind has this natural hostility toward God. Uh, for most people, a, a, a lack of belief in God is a sign of, uh, is, it's not about the head, it's about the heart. Look at this next slide, Richard Dawkins. You recognize him, he's one of the most outspoken atheists. And one time he was um, asked the question, is there anything, anything, 
Can God do anything to make you believe in him? Could God just do something in your presence and you go, wow, God is real? Here's what he said. He said, no. Could God do anything to prove to you that he's real? The man said, no. If God showed up into this room, I'd want to know what sort of psychological or naturalistic explanation is going on here. His atheism has grown into anti-theism. It's not like, I don't believe in God. I'm against believing in God, and that's a dangerous place to be, and it springs from a hatred of God. Unbelief is almost always a matter of the heart, never the head. I heard this story. You've heard this about the high school girl. She had to do um, a report and it had to be a, a character in history where something really unusual happened to them. So she decided to do Jonah. Because, have you ever read that? Something unusual happens to Jonah. And so she does this report, and she turns it in. And the teacher called her out in class and is like, this is not real. This is a fairy tale. This didn't actually happen. You know, and, and the student's like, yes, it did. And then she's like, this is Do you really believe you know, that, uh, do you really believe that Jonah could stay in the belly of a fish for three days? Uh, and the girl said, I don't know, you know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask him, right? And then she said, well, what if he's not, the teacher says, well, what if he's not there? And the student said, you ask him. <laughs> Listen, usually unbelief is a matter of the head, not the heart. Now, scripture bears that out. All throughout his ministry, uh, Jesus was explaining that if you have the right posture of the heart. Uh, he says, ears to hear. Let him who has ears to hear. That's a heart posture. It's not about the direction of your ears. It's a willingness to hear the truth. Then the truth is going to be obvious when you see it. It's just obvious. But before we move on, I want to point out one more time. Religion can be a very effective tool to ignore the authority of God in your life. Many people use religion as an excuse to not be fully surrendered to God. In other words, if I do ABC, XYZ, I keep the big guy off my back, and I don't really have to surrender to him. I keep my end of the deal, then he'll keep his end of the deal. And it's just not true. You're not really trying to know God or walk with God, but you're keeping him at a distance to keep him off your back. It doesn't work. Number two, write this down. Second thing we learn from this parable is this, that most people reject Jesus because they want control. Most people reject Jesus because they want control. The servants had been hired by the owner, but they were acting as if they owned the vineyard, weren't they? Everything in us wants to pretend like we're the owners and not the renters, that we're the owners and not the tenants. We live our life like that. But the world constantly reinforces to us, hey, you're the owner, you're the owner. But when we look at reality, it says something different. A lot of sin goes back to this question, who owns your life? Who owns your life? Is, is it your life? And Jesus has a little bit of it, or does he have all of it? A lot of sin simply goes back to that question. Matter of fact, for many people, Jesus, look at this next slide. Jesus is a, a GPS does anybody even use those anymore? Think about it, I want to. Call, I use my phone now, right? I use my cell phone, and the screen is you know that big, and so I, I use my cell phone now for my GPS. But whenever you're using your GPS, you know, uh, here's how people use Jesus like a GPS. You decide if you want a happy life, and you kind of want to get where you want to go. Uh, you kind of keep Jesus there, so He can help you get where you're going. And then, but you've always 
The GPS may tell you where to go, but that doesn't mean you have to, do you? The GPS will say, turn right, turn right. You go straight. And what's the GPS going to say? Recalculating. <laughs> Recalculating. Many times in our life, uh, Jesus says, turn right, turn right. And we think we go straight, and Jesus is going to say, well, okay, recalculating. And it's just not the case. God is the owner of your life. Jesus isn't the navigation system for your life where he's giving nice directions. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's your master of all, or he's not the master at all. God is the owner of your life. Number three, write this down. You're not going to like this. God's grace is amazing, but it won't be offered forever. There are limits to the grace of God. Now, we don't talk about it a lot because I don't like to talk about it a lot. But God's grace is amazing, and it's incredible, and in some ways it's unending, unyielding. Un, just, it's, it's, it's a, the grace of God is amazing until you die without it. God shows his grace in this story in a bunch of ways. First, the fact that he gives, do you know who you are in the story about? I don't know if we covered this. You're the guys killing everybody. That's who we are. Right? We're not the owner of the vineyard. We're the tenants. That's who we are in this story. And God is showing his grace again and again. He sends his servants, right? And, they got, and then he sends more servants. He's just showing his grace over and over. And also the fact that he gives us the vineyard to enjoy to begin with, right? That's a blessing. Wow, we've got this vineyard. God is so good to us. It's a great gift that God gives us. And then through repeated patient warnings, God's great. For some of you right now, God is showing you his grace right now because you're getting to hear this message about grace again. You didn't respond to it the last time that you heard it, and God loves you so much. He's got so much grace, mercy, love, and compassion for you that he's allowed you to be here tonight so you can hear this amazing story of grace one more time. One more time. That's how good. Isn't God good? That he loves us like that. And in the story, he doesn't send them one messenger, one chance, just over and over again. The same is true for us. And also, it's just some things in the natural world. God is good to us because he teaches us. While the world system tries to say that we're the owners, God clearly tells us we're the tenants. Um, anybody in here getting older? Aging is depressing. Amen? But it's God's gracious reminder that we don't last forever, that this life isn't forever. Just even in the aging process, you know, I'm a renter, not an owner. I'm a tenant, not the landowner, even in aging. Uh, even knowing how fragile life is, how fragile our bodies are. Even when somebody, Miss Glenda, somebody gets sick, you recognize how fragile life is. And that's a reminder, we're renters, we're not owners. God is good to us. I remember I saw, uh, what was his name, a story about a decorated Civil War general. And, you know, he'd led men into combat. He'd, he'd faced down the mouths of cannons and bullets flying and bodies flying, all of that. He made it all the way through the Civil War, and then he died because of the bite of a tick. The bite of a tick. Life is fragile. And even in that fragility of life, God has been good to us and saying, hey, he's speaking to us. It's temporary. You are a renter, not an owner. Look at this next slide. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, Love him. 
in, in uh, his work. We, our theology wouldn't line up in everything, but I love his books and his writings. And so if you're looking for something to read to your kids, I mean, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, read to your babies, read all of them. All the Chronicles of Narnia, read them to your kids, and you'll like it as much as they do. Did I mention I like C.S. Lewis? Okay, moving on. Uh, so C.S. Lewis said this one time. He's, he talked about, and I've quoted this before, but he talked about this, uh, this unfulfilled longing in every heart. This un- just, oh, uh, something's missing. Here's what he said. And matter of fact, one time he said that in every, everything in life that's pleasurable, the desire for it and the longing for it was almost, be- was almost always better than the thing. Like, how good you think that ice cream is going to be is almost always better than it actually ends up being five minutes after you eat it. Does that make sense? That the, the longing and the desire, listen to what he said. He says, it's like my life has been spent chasing the scent of a flower I have never been able to find, right? He said, the echo of a tune in my soul, uh, the echo of a tune in my soul longs to hear. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world will satisfy, the only explanation is that I was created for another world. Even unfulfilled longings in your heart that everything isn't right is God's mercy and his grace. You're a renter. You're a tenant. You're not the owner. This is temporary. Life is a messenger constantly coming at you saying, you're not in charge. You're not the owner. You are a renter. God shows his mercy by allowing you to tend the land and by repeated warnings uh, uh, telling you um, uh, of, that he's the owner. And the ultimate way, of course, is when he sends his son. You know that's what the picture is. When you read that parable, you know, and then I sent my son. Surely they'll respect him. You know when you read that, that that's Jesus. And that's what he did for us. He sent his son. I mean, you have to be a little dumbfounded by the fact that when the, the, everybody else, all the servants had been killed, that the landowner sends his son. They killed the other messengers. Aren't they going to kill the son too? I mean, who would send their son in that situation? Not me. Not me. Maybe you. I've said this before. I hope you know I love you. Mostly. Um, I wouldn't trade my son for all of you. Now, maybe you would. I know, I know you're a bitter, better Christian than I am, and you love everybody in here more, right? You know, I wouldn't trade, you know, family excluded. I'd trade him for you in a heartbeat. Amen? I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade my son for everybody in this room. Why? Would you trade your son for me right now? He goes, I stay. Anybody want to say yes, you would? Not on purpose. Not if you had the choice. Do you see what I'm saying? That's how amazing the love of God is. He sent his son when we wouldn't, when we know what would happen. It's one thing like we send our, our sons into the military to, to defend our country and all of those things. And but that's not the same as knowing you're going to die and they're going to live. God's mercy and grace revealed in stories like this is absolutely amazing and staggering and dumbfounding from our human perspective. God sent his son knowing what we would do to him. And don't forget it's us. Scripture's clear that our sin, 
our sin. And what's amazing, he did this because he's demonstrating his love to us. Look at this slide, Romans 5, 8. Look at it. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're at the vineyard acting like we own the place and killing the servants of God, he sent his son to demonstrate how much he loves us. He's putting it on display in a way that you can't doubt it and you cannot forget it. And he was enabling us to trust him by showing us his willingness to identify with us. God had no personal vested interest in coming down here and being like us. Have you noticed? We're not that great. Especially that old man at that gym that said, I look like a sumo wrestler. God forgive him. We're not that great. God had, there was nothing in it for God to come here and live among us. I heard a preacher tell the illustration. Um, you know the big, you remember the big wheels? Any of y'all old enough to have the big wheels? They were amazing if you knew how to ride them. And they were like just, just high enough to really get run over by a car. And uh, anyway, that's back then, safety third back in the day. You know, nobody, and it told a story, it preached told a story behind his house in their neighborhood, kind of had like an empty lot. And there was all kinds of ant piles back there, ant mounds. And this one mean kid in the neighborhood, he would go out there and take jelly and smear it around out there in the lot and try to attract as many ants as possible. Then he would get on his big wheel, and he would take off, and he would do like a power slide to why and just kill. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe your child is like that. And so just kill as many ants as possible, you know. And so the preacher tells that story, and he says this. He said, even as a kid, he kind of thought, man, those ants never saw it coming, right? They're going after the jelly and this bad kid just wears them out and kills all those poor ants if you lo- and listen if you're a person and you love those ants could you warn them i mean could you s- thou shalt not eat the jelly it's a bushwhack <laughs> it's an ambush that wouldn't work only an ant could warn ants and only an ant with a proper perspective knowledge wisdom and understanding could actually help the other ants Does that make sense Okay, it's a terrible illustration, but it's all I got right now. In becoming a man, God demonstrated his love for us in ways that showed us that we could trust him. It's amazing and it's beautiful. And then his death, that's the amazing thing. The son goes to the vineyard, they kill him too, right? But we know uh, in the gospel story that it's the death of Christ. That's the death of Christ is the means by which we're saved. It doesn't even, okay, let me blow your mind. Let me just blow your mind. I'm being serious. Look at this next slide. Our murder of Jesus became the means of our forgiveness. How does that happen? He sent his son. He knew what we would do. Jesus knew what we would do. Our murder, who sins? Our sins. And again, don't, don't reflect back and think that you wouldn't have been one of them. Don't think you wouldn't have been a Pharisee or a Roman soldier, right? Anything this parable teaches us is that the, the, the heart is sinful and wicked. It could have been us, literally us. We're not better than the Pharisees, are we? I mean, yeah, we are. Come on, yeah. But the potential is there, isn't it, in every human heart? And it was the murder of Jesus. Our murder of Christ was the means by which Christ brought us forgiveness. He died for our sin, paying penalty 
in our, the penalty in our place. It's amazing. That's the irony of the gospel, that the murder that came from a heart full of hatred, God used to give uh, his people a heart of love. It's amazing. His willingness to serve us and suffer for us is, uh, the, is, is what breaks the strongholds of self-centeredness, self-pride, and ego in our own hearts. And now we've got a choice. But look at verse 42 again in your Bible. Matthew 21, verse 42. It said, Jesus said to them, Have you ever read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls in the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls it will grind him to power. His grace is amazing, but it doesn't last forever for those who reject it. It just doesn't. You choose whether you let his death compel you to repent or and build your life on him, you're going to build your life on yourself. You build the life on yourself, he will crush you. And God in his mercy has sent messenger after messenger after messenger saying he is the chief cornerstone. Right? You build on that or someday he will crush you. And he sent Jesus because he loves us and his grace is amazing and it doesn't last Really, the question is, when I read this story, if you won't listen to Jesus, who will you listen to? Nobody. Now, again, one more point. We're almost done. But when we look at this, I want you to know, again, this is hard, but it's good news. Number, Number four, write this down. God doesn't need me. That's really good news because I'm not that great. God doesn't need me. Everything isn't hinging upon me. But the, the, in God's grace and his mercy, he's chosen to use us. But even that's not guaranteed. Look at the last statement. Jesus, Jesus told the leaders something here they did not believe. Matthew 21, verse 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. They had to be thinking, we are God's chosen people. There is no way, right? We are the people of God. God. In another place in Scripture, they said God would never destroy us. He, they said we are the sons of Abraham. And then what did Jesus say? Jesus said God the Father can have sons and daughters from these rocks. He doesn't need you. And a lot of times we think God does, but he doesn't. Paul gives us this warning in Romans chapter 11, verse 20. Look at it in your notes. It says, because of unbelief, they were broken off Talking about the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. So, like, don't so don't be prideful of that. Like, you're better than the, an unbelieving Jewish person. He says this: Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branch, Israel, He may not spare you either. If God took the gospel from Israel, and he did, if God takes the gospel from Israel and he gave it to the Gentiles, never be so prideful to think that you've got it and he'll never take it from us and give it to somebody else. If he took it from them and they didn't respond, he could do the same thing. He could take it from our church, from my family line. He could take it from our denomination Take it from our country. No country in the history of the world has had access to the gospel like the United States has. There's no guarantee that that will continue. God's promises are guaranteed. And he's doing mighty things in this world. But he just doesn't need us. 
necessarily to do it. God's been doing great things right here at Grace Baptist Church. But let me tell you something. Uh, just because he's been doing great things, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. We start strutting and bragging on ourselves about the mercy and grace of God, but we're acting like it's really all about us and it's really all about me. God might say, I've been pouring those blessings out on you, but guess what? Now I'm going over here. Right? You've used it. You abused it. God at any time can just take his hand off our church, my family, our denomination, our country, any of them. We can't ever be so presumptuous on the grace of God to think that on, God can only do mighty things through us. God can only do big things through me. God can only work and move through me. We are his people. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. We are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And Jesus is like, the father can have sons and daughters out of these rocks. He can raise up rocks to be his sons and daughters if he wants to. The, there is no bad news here. The hard reality is God doesn't need us. The good news is he's chosen to use us and he loves us and he shows us his mercy and grace in a huge, amazing ways. But we don't ever want to be like the Pharisees and to neglect and abuse the love and grace of God. If we don't walk forward in humility, God's going to pour out his spirit somewhere else. I don't know about you, but I want God to pour out His Spirit on my life, on my family, my church, my denomination, and my country. That's what I want, and it's okay for me to want that. But to have that, we're going to have to walk forward in humility, recognizing who He is and knowing we are renters. He is the owner of everything. Amen? Let's stand and be dismissed with